The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. As stated in an earlier episode discussing types and shadows, when we study all of Scripture, we tend to see that indeed God seems to create all things according to a pattern which testifies of Him. As we continue to look and study the visible and invisible things of creation, we are able to increasingly see God's reflection to some degree in that mirror. When these examples occur within Scripture, we characteristically refer to them as types or shadows. We shall also see that ultimately, as with all Scripture, that these types and shadows point to the substance, which is Jesus. In this episode, we continue our study of types and shadows with the story of Jacob's ladder. In part one of this episode, we began our study as Jacob left Beersheba en route to Haran. As he travels, Jacob seemingly makes an innocuous stopover at a quote-unquote certain place, later named Bethel. 
we saw that there were several traditional Jewish commentaries as well as other textual linguistics that gave us the suggestion and inference that the quote-unquote certain place, later named Bethel, where the upcoming dream revealed to Jacob takes place is none other than Mount Moriah. As we begin to closely study the text and its various types, we began to see that the substances of these types provide clear pictorial representations of God's redemptive plan for his creation. As we concluded part one, we left off looking at the lively stones of God's temple, comprised of his people, Israel, and the church. In this episode, we pick up our discussion of Jacob's dream of a ladder. In Genesis chapter 28, verse 11, as Jacob sleeps, God reveals a ladder whose base touches earth and whose top reaches heaven. On the top, God stands while the angels ascend and descend on this ladder. Quote, And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land wherein thou liest to thee I will give it, and to thy seed." I would submit that here again in keeping with the ongoing type, we have a picture of the substance. God takes Jacob across folded time to Mount Moriah, to Calvary itself. Once there, Jacob sees the focal point of historical soteriology. We see Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, voluntarily shedding his blood and dying as a propitiatory sacrifice on our behalf. So those whom God draws by his grace to repentance by faith in Jesus' finished work have access to the Father. The latter is a path, a bridge, a singular way represented by Jesus who is the only way like the latter to the Father. This, I believe, is why when Jacob arises, he correctly proclaims that the latter is a type of the completed propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus, by which those whom God is pleased to cover have access to reconciliation to God. They have entrance via this gate, the only gate, to heaven, where they can stand clothed in Jesus' righteousness before God. It is, I believe, also an explanation why we do not hear or see Jacob climbing the ladder. Jacob cannot do so any more than any man has the nature and ability to do so. It is God the Father who stands at the top. It is God the Son, Jesus, come in the flesh as a man who is the stone, the pillar, lifted up as an altar upon which he makes propitiation, by which he makes a way a path of reconciliation between man on earth and God in heaven. As this dream of the latter is revealed, and by extension the substance which it represents, God speaks to Jacob, giving him a promise. The promise is worth repeating here. Quote, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, and the God of Isaac, 
The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest. And I will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of." Unquote. Notice the references to Jacob's seed, in particular the statement, quote, And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Unquote. Here, the singular tense of the word, quote unquote, seed, is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where it is said, quote, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel, unquote. I would submit that the usage of the word seed in the above statement to Jacob is the same as that of Genesis. In both cases, it may be understood that the lineage, i.e. seed of Eve, was ultimately in time to lead to her descendant Jesus, the Christ. In the same way, we may see that as Joseph lay there watching in the theater of his mind, the type and substance of God's redemptive plan, that the ultimate culmination of God's plan, Jesus, the man, lie in waiting as Joseph's seed. In the fullness of time, that seed, Jesus, would be the instrument of blessing to all those for whom God is pleased to draw and receive it. Because Jacob was the humble vehicle of that seed, he too would be blessed for his faithfulness. Now, perhaps some who are listening might be saying, uh, mm, I don't know, this is somewhat fanciful, romanticized version of what this simple story in Genesis is about. You're being too creative in your own imagination. Well, perhaps. However, before you start getting too disappointed or dismiss the suggested substance, May I respectfully take you to the book of John, chapter 1, verses 44 through 51, and listen to John relate a story wherein Jesus himself speaks regarding something which, in my opinion, is too much to be called coincidence. Quote, now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming unto him, and saith unto him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, 
Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, now pay close attention here. Verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, unquote. So here we have this uncanny, eerie, deja vu quote of a depiction of, quote, heaven being open and the angels ascending and descending, unquote. The only difference is that in Jacob's case, the angels are ascending and descending upon a, quote, unquote, ladder, while according to Jesus, the angels are ascending and descending upon, quote, the Son of Man, unquote which of course is a clear title synonymous with himself, Jesus the Christ. Is there any doubt that Jesus here is equating himself as the substance of Jacob's latter type? Further, if we are to assume Jesus was not waxing poetic, but rather predicting some future event, then where in history could we point to where we might say that, quote, heaven was open, and the angels of God were ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, unquote. I again submit that none other than Jesus himself supplies the key here to verifying and understanding the substance of the type at hand which has been detailed. As to why Jesus said this and what point he was trying to make, I think is clear. Nathaniel instinctively recognized that no mortal man could discern Nathaniel's heart nor see him sitting under a fig tree some six miles away, the distance in question from Nazareth to Cana. This could only be God. Nathaniel was rightly impressed, but Jesus revealed the greatest sign of his divinity was yet to come. As such, he makes the seemingly allegorical allusion to his crucifixion. At the same time, the imagery hearkening back to Jacob's latter incident is far more than allegorical. For example, we have the angels ascending and descending a ladder. So the question is, what are these angels doing? What does it mean? Why are they here? While it may sound like a trite reply, a question or two may prove insightful. First, when are angels not present? Second, why would angels not be present at such a monumental event in history? In full, angels are both messengers, which is what the original word means, but they are also soldiers. All too often our modern perception of angels is that they are cute little children with feathered wings and halos, floating around with harps, playing ethereal music. But a survey of scripture reveals that they are the equivalent of special forces warriors dedicated to a great high king and commander, Yahweh. In one instance, 2 Kings chapter 19 verse 35 in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 36, we have detail of how just one angel appears and decimates 185,000 Assyrian army warriors. 
And as we move forward, we find Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to his arrest, trial, and crucifixion in Matthew chapter 26, verse 35. Here, as the crowd comes to arrest Jesus, Peter thinks to go into battle and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Upon settling Peter down, Jesus says, quote, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? Unquote? The first thing to observe is that twelve legions would be about 72,000 angels. Perhaps since the n- number 12 is associated with complete government, Jesus may here be saying in effect that all heaven awaits and is at his disposal to do his will. Second, if one angel is able to single-handedly kill 185,000 warriors in one night, what will 72,000 angels be capable of doing? Lastly, the original word translated, quote, shall presently give, unquote, may mislead us into imagining that the proposed 12 legions of angels were sitting around in the equivalent of heaven's uh, Wayne Manor waiting for the bat signal, at which time they could all slide down the bat pole together and uh, gather their dusty swords and come to Jesus' rescue. But in contrast, almost every time the original word translated, quote, shall presently give, unquote, is used, it is translated to clearly and correctly say that the person or persons in question are immediately present at that very moment, in that very place. That being said, I personally think that it is sophistry to suggest that these angels were not ready and present at all times during Jesus' earthly life. All that was waiting was for Jesus to speak the command, and those twelve legions who stood vigilant with swords sharpened and drawn would, if necessary, conquer the world. If this was the case in the garden, then how much more the case at the most pivotal moment in eternity? I also suggest that this picture of angels ascending and descending the path, the mechanism, the gate of redemption and entrance into heaven, represents the ongoing, unseen, spiritual battle which goes on, On the one hand, from Genesis 3 until Revelation 20.10, where Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, we know that according to John chapter 10, verse 10, Satan's end goal is to kill, steal, and destroy as many as he can. In contrast, we have God's heart's desire, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, which tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Between these two goals stands the cosmic battle where the war for man's eternal destiny is at stake. This being said, Jesus' completed work at the cross is the literal coup de gras put in place before the world began, there for all those to whom are drawn by God's mercy. If this is the battlehead and turning point in this war, 
then where better to expect seeing God's soldiers and warriors who are called angels? Now, some may protest because nowhere is there any indication in Scripture that Nathanael was present at Jesus' crucifixion. Tradition seems to indicate that Nathanael abandoned Jesus at his arrest and was absent during the crucifixion. But I would submit that as a matter of logic, one does not need to be personally present to observe something in order to know or be aware of its reality. As an example, most people in most cities are aware that they have a mayor. No one ever questions that the mayor exists, even though many, if not most, may have never met the mayor. If you picked up the local paper and read the headline, which read, quote, Mayor climbs Mount Everest, unquote, you might justifiably say, quote, I never thought I would see the day when our mayor climbed Mount Everest, unquote. You could justifiably say this even though you were not immediately personally there watching him climb the mountain. This is because the term, quote unquote, see can also be used in a sense of general or specific experiential knowledge. So, the next question is, is there any reasonable indication in Scripture which would indicate that Nathanael had experiential knowledge that Jesus had been crucified, died, and rose again? Answer, yes. Turn to John chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. Quote, after these things, what things? Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, death. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed himself. There were together Simon, Peter, and Thomas called Didymus, and, wait for it, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other of his disciples, unquote. During this encounter with the bodily risen Jesus, Nathanael and the other disciples caught a multitude of fish where there were none after hours of exhaustive fishing, and they ate together with Jesus. Finally, in verse 25, John concludes saying, quote, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Unquote. Thus, it is clear from this encounter, which also mentions in verse 14, that this was the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after his death, that at least in one instance Nathanael was a witness to first-hand experiential knowledge that in fact Jesus was crucified, died, and had risen bodily again. Returning to our Genesis account, we find Jacob awakening as the sun has risen and being filled with awe and reverent fear. The reason is that he arrived at night when it was dark. He had not yet seen the dream or the vision of the latter. He had not seen God standing at the top. He had not received God's promise. But when he awakens, all of this has changed. 
In this vein, I would submit that the reason is that because Jacob has had a personal encounter with God. This is not only true of Jacob in our type, but it is true of every person whom God is pleased to meet in that certain place where we, like Jacob, arrive. We are in darkness. We slumber in ignorance of our rebellion, sin, and separation from God. Not only so, but as the original word translated, quote, tarry or lodge, unquote, portrays, we do so with obstinacy. Our nature is such that because of sin, we would remain in the desert wandering, lost, doomed, and dying. We will never find Haran, which means to purify. All of our works and efforts will be filthy rags. We will certainly never reach the promised land, i.e. heaven. Without the propitiation and finished work of Jesus, which this latter depicts, we are already dead in our sins and trespasses. While we may have moved away from Esau, who is the type of the carnal nature, without a new nature imputed to us through the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, Esau remains with us, and we will never receive God's blessing. But here, thanks be to God, God is like Luz, the almond tree. He is faithful, watchful, eager, and pleased in his mercy to draw us, to meet us, and to by his grace open our hearts and reveal to us our need for repentance and reconciliation. God reveals that he has made a way of atonement between God and man, which lies at our feet as it did with Jacob. Here, at that certain place, Calvary, Jesus has forever completed the work on our behalf, which provides efficient and sufficient covering for all of our sins and trespasses, past, present, and future. The gate is open. The path is sure. The journey is secure. Like Jacob, God awakens us. Like the almond tree blossoming in spring, we are reborn to the newness of life. We are no longer in darkness. The Son of God has risen. The stone is lifted up. It has been made an altar worthy of worship as it is our better stone and altar, Jesus. By the work of the Holy Spirit, we cry out from that certain place and declare from our spirit that this is the place, our spirit, where God now abides, is truly Bethel, the house of God. Having this foundation stone of Christ set in our heart, we are set apart and separated from the world. We, along with other believers, become the lively stones fused together by the common love, grace, peace, joy, hope, and faith which makes us the church, the outcalled ones, the bride of Christ. Individually and jointly, God works via his continuing grace and mercy to transform, sanctify, and purify us progressively, which is what the designation Haran means. Ultimately, 
when we reach the promised land heaven, we will realize the fulfillment of the prophecy made in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, quote, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Unquote. Father, I pray that like Jacob, it would be your will, by your grace, that we would see the truth, the reality, the blessing, your gift, your Son, Yeshua, Jesus the Christ, who is the only ladder, the only bridge between an unworthy, rebellious, and sinful creation, man, and you, who are the most holy, worthy, perfect, and eternal God. Having seen it and understood it, I pray that as many as you would, will, like Jacob, awaken to your blessing. Grant us the knowledge by faith that God is in this place where you have appointed for your chosen to rest and to have a relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now this concludes this episode. If you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. The world falls around me, I rest and know that He has found me. Christ, the rock, is my